Today, my guest is Professor Chris Vitalis. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Chris as a person. Professor Vitalis is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Pitellis is a member of the Cambridge Political Economy Society and the Harry Hansen Research Fellowship Trust. Chris has served as the president of the Hellenic Organization of Small and Medium-Sized Enterprises. He is also an editor of the Cambridge Journal of Economics, a member of the Cambridge Political Economy Society, and the literary executor of the collected papers of Edith Fenros. Chris served on the editorial boards of Organization Science and Organization Studies. He has coordinated projects, taught, consulted, trained, and designed policies for international organizations, national governments, and regions, NGOs, and businesses. Thank you, Chris, for joining us. Thanks, uh, Hilgas, and thank you very much for the invitation. Let me just uh, add to this the, 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 the fact that I am the, the head of the International Business Division at the University of Leeds, which is uh, my current and major affiliation for which I'm proud. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, Chris, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? <laughs> well, I mean, you, as you know, these things are varying across your life. So you start to solidify your preferences when you are around 18, 19, depending on the person. So I started wanting to be a singer, songwriter, painter, conductor, then inventor, politician. For a period, I wanted to be the bodybuilder, Franco Columbu. Then I wanted to be Bruce Lee. Then an actor, a lawyer, a psychiatrist. <laughs> uh, by 13, I had read the collected papers of Freud. And uh, I, I wanted to be a psychanalyst, but then I moved. I decided I want to become an academic around 19. And then I decided to become a, an economist, not so much because I like economics, but partly because I find it hard to put stru structure in the subject I really, really like the most, which were sociology, social psychology, and political science, which I felt without understanding economics were a bit more difficult to put a structure behind them. So that moved me to political economy and uh, Hence, academic political economy. Perfect. And where did you grow up? I grew up in northern uh, Greece. And when you say grew up, I mean at around I 18 until I went to the university. I went to the University of Athens. Following that, I moved to Newcastle in 1979. That was the same year as Mrs. Thatcher came to power. And at my, uh, throughout the rest of the time, with the exception of one or two uh, sabbaticals that I use for visiting professorships, I've been in Britain, but mostly in Cambridge, where I was for 22 years, and uh, then a number of other universities, my latest affiliation, and I said, proud of this, is Leeds. Perfect. Uh, Chris, uh, in, your, uh, in the bio that I got off from the, from the school website, it says, uh, literary executor of the collected papers of Edith Penrose. What, what is that? What do you do? 
Okay, it's a very interesting uh, question, this one, because uh, I met Edith Penrose around four or five years before she died. We became good friends. Um, I was visiting her uh, house uh, in uh, Waterbeach near Cambridge. And in one of the visits after I had, uh, we had uh, uh, one or two glasses of red wine. That was uh, one of the favorite uh, drinks of uh, Edith. But I hope not because of this. Uh, she actually said to me that she would be, she has so many papers, works and things like that. And she's worried what is going to happen with this. And I, I simply offered at the time to take care of them and basically to make sure that uh, I have the bro in Cambridge at the time, and now I have it with me in Leeds, the broad equivalent of what the Hoover Institution has in, uh, in Stanford. Uh, from the collected papers of, of Fritz Maclab, who was the supervisor of Edith, and therefore also half of the correspondence between them. And this correspondence is very interesting. So in the context of being literally executive, what I do is basically, I am preparing the collected papers of hers, which will appear in a couple of years. It's proving a very long-term project. In the meantime, I'm putting special issues about Penrose and a number of other activities or even granting permissions to people who want to do this. I, most recently, I had a request by somebody who wants to publish in a, a volume of papers the inaugural speech she gave to LSE when she became a professor. Uh, another thing is that we are involved with the URAM Prize on uh, Edith Penrose Prize, which is offered by, uh, it's, it's actually funded by INSERT. So there are a number of Penrose-related activities. Very interesting. This is fascinating, really. Um, well, uh, something uh, let that me is- tell you, I talk about this for centuries, but I, I, I stopped because I know you have other questions too. <laughs> okay. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. Well, uh, there are a number of interesting things in my CV that people might find uh, interesting. I mean, I was uh, a disc jockey. I was a bodybuilder, <laughs> I was a, marti a martial artist, and I ran a cafe in downtown Athens where I managed to lose all my savings because I thought I could run a cafe from Cambridge. It turns out that it's not like academic collaboration. You really need to be physically there and a number of other things like cleaning cars, selling books. I was for a short period of time an extra in a, t in a couple of TV serials. Basically, I was trying to collect experiences that they may prove useful later. Most of them did not. It's <laughs> <laughs> super interesting. Uh, if you stop doing what you're doing today, what's the second best career path for you? Okay, the preferred use and remains to be an artist or a philosopher, a lawyer, psychoanalyst, piano player. But my more practical hobbies are basically antique furniture collection and ice cream major. One of my dreams is and remains to uh, finish the University of Ice Cream in Italy. And then during my retirement, run a small uh, ice cream shop. Uh, back in England or in, in, uh, in Greece? 
That may be in Greece, although I have not decided, uh, because uh, there are places like Cambridge and even St. Andrews, where I have been for four years, that they are very strong candidates for my retirement. Although, with all honesty, Ilgas, my suspicion is I will die working uh, retirement. <laughs> That's the most death dream. But anyway, uh, uh, that, that won't happen for a long about hoping and planning. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, regrets. Have you got any regrets other than the cafe? Uh... Well, I mean, uh, most regrets have to do with um, things that could have been done. The most important one is that I never really managed to play the piano. I tried a couple of times. I didn't get into this. I liked it very much. Learning how to make good ice cream was a, re a regret too. So, but academically speaking, uh, around 20 years ago, I had come up with the idea to, to develop some sort of fully fledged theory of post-classical political economy. And uh, I did get few papers out of this one published in the Cambridge Journal of Economics, but I really never had the time to properly pursue this. And this is a regret. Another regret is visiting all Greek islands, as you know, with, but this is everybody's regret. And as I said, graduate from the ice cream university, which I still plan to do. Uh, do you go to Greece every summer? That uh, most of summers, it hasn't worked every summer. I'm not, partly because on some occasions, uh, for example, when I was a visiting professor, in Australia, that was the only period I could go was uh, during the summer, the European summer, which was term time in Australia. So not all of them, but as many as possible. Interesting. Uh, what are you most proud of? Well, the one thing I, I feel a, a bit proud, uh, very, I should say proud is basically that uh, something like 25 years later, I have coordinated a, a project in the Ministry of uh, Development in uh, Industry and Development in Greece, which intended to bring together labor unions with uh, industrialists, business people, the Confederation of uh, Small and Medium-Sized Enterprises and the European Commission to sign together the outcome of a huge project about the future of uh, uh, in industry and competitiveness, which included something like um, 60, 70 volumes, but it was summarized in, in uh, around 20 pages with 29 proposals that subsequently were co-signed by the four major players, became official policy, and then partly that informed the uh, networking and clusters policy for the European Commission, which I then became the international expert on clusters for the NetWind project of the European Commission, and where we continued some of the work on clusters. But I must admit most of the outcomes, if any, were basically from the European side rather than the Greek side, because when it came to real to implementation, in Greece, like in many similar countries, uh, not as much happened as it should have happened or it could have happened for a complex set of reasons, institutional rigidities, et cetera, et cetera. We, don't, we know about all of these things, 
but much more could have happened. This is without meaning that nothing has happened because at the time around 5960 clusters of small and medium sized enterprises had been funded as a result of this. Subsequent developmental policies have actually been, uh, <clears throat> have relied on this. When I was president of the small and medium sized enterprises, we used this to develop a strategy for uh, youth and, uh, and women entrepreneurship. So there have been some outcomes, but not what I would have liked. So basically the, the main pride is not with the project itself and what it has achieved, but by bringing to the same table, the groups of people who were viewed beforehand as major antagonists, especially if you know the history of the country and who would, under normal circumstances would never have signed, have agreed to a certain document, but eventually they agreed to this consensus-based industrial strategy. Other than this, I do like things that look like impossible at first glance with management, for example, managing organizations. Well, I did manage to get, when I was leading the process in another university an accreditation, which would normally require five, six years after an initial failure and it was delivered in one year. In another university, the task was to increase enrollment and it was, we managed to double enrollment without reducing standards in just over a year. To be honest, in the, if you, within the, in the context of the big picture, they mean absolutely nothing to be honest to anybody, but somehow they give you a sense of pride in the sense that you've done things which appear to be hard to do to start with, that's all. Chris, let me ask you this about your political aspirations or whether you have political aspirations, especially for institutions uh, within the EU. Um, I mean, obviously you would like to see some impact of your work, your efforts, right? And uh, maybe a, a means of achieving it is joining or influencing uh, these political uh, entities, you know, institutions. Do you have any political aspirations? Listen, it's very interesting that this I did have. I was involved twice in, twice in politics and I decided I'm no longer interested at all because the opportunity cost of your time, it's always, almost always incomparable with uh, uh, the, the real contribution you must make, you can make. The contribution appears to be very substantial in the beginning. For example, when I was, I became an advisor to the Ministry of Industry, I was shocked to find out that what we were writing about industrial strategy for years, and it appeared to be influencing nobody, suddenly became official government policy. So I felt very empowered, so to speak, because of this. But then you realize that this is very, very uh, transitional, to be honest. Uh, the government changes, things change, and basically the opportunities to make substantive change are very difficult unless the right circumstances are in place. These are not in place. So it's a job for people who are either professional or they do not have, in my what a very high opportunity cost. And for me, everything in my life, I count it in terms of missed good ideas published in a decent uh, outlet, which may be a journal, may be a book. So the time I spent with Greek politics had and with politics in general has probably costed me around 
four or five major contributions. I can even name the journals and the, and the books that were not delivered because of this. And I, although I, I, I do not regret this, I do not want to repeat it either. Interesting. That is interesting, actually. I mean, if you think about it, going in politics, doing something and then getting out is a higher payoff than remaining in it or having a career uh, in it. So let's talk about research. Uh, you, you started talking about it. So how do you explain your research and the importance of your research to people who don't read your work regularly? Like layman uh, on the streets, uh, say you're stranded in a small village, uh, people are curious about you. How, how do you explain what you do to them? Well, I mean, it's basically, it's, it's all going back to Adam Smith. I'm explaining to them how in the process of their everyday life and actually trying to achieve uh, what they like uh, through specialization, division of labor and uh, teamwork as well as learning, basically they manage to increase productivity, uh, knowledge, innovation for the whole of the society. So basically, ceteris paribus, assuming that the distribution of income is such that there are no embedded power structures that render it very unfair, their work benefits themselves and also benefits everybody else. And basically, it's as simple as that, and even simpler than that, because what I am explaining to my students, it's basically that there is not much difference between uh, business strategy and life in general, because most of it is all about capturing value from co-created co advantage, from, uh, from co-created value, from value co-creating advantages. So basically the idea is identify what are your advantages, how you can create and co-create value, and ideally how much, uh, try to get as much as possible out of it for yourself, because you have helped co-created it. So this is the idea. And basically, this applies to strategy, business strategy, to business firms, but it also applies to human beings. And that's what I'm saying to my students. And to a lay person, for example, who asked me, what do I do? That's what I do. I try to identify the best, the conditions under which uh, the value capture from value co-creating advantages can engender sustainable value co-creation, ideally internationally, as opposed to just nationally or for particular groups. Thank you. Chris, about forgotten areas, forgetting, uh, forgotten context, understudied, underutilized uh, questions, uh, areas in IB, what can you say that we should be thinking more of? Okay, this is a very good question as well. I mean, it, you know, in IB and in every basically scientific field, we do tend to find it easier to focus on incremental changes of what has happened. So there is some uh, path dependency. This basically, as Peter Buckley had said some time ago in a Zips article, create a situation where we forget to talk about uh, the big issues. There are very, very big issues today that gradually I would expect to see in IB that have to do with uh, uh, issues like uh, distribution of opportunities, they have to do with uh, power, they have to do with global regulation, they have to do with regulate, we have to do with uh, uh, climate change and sustainability. Um, all of these things are very, uh, they have to do with migration, which is a huge issue at the moment. Uh, let me say that uh, thankfully IB being 
an interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary field with uh, a lot of interest in the related areas and complementary areas have gradually moved in these directions. For example, I've recently seen articles on environmental policy and a special issue. Uh, I see, for example, work uh, being done on uh, the and on migration and the environment. So I think that we are in a very good position in IB to develop these areas, but clearly more needs to be done because uh, we keep dealing. So my preference would be to see us diversifying from strength in these areas, as opposed to, in, to incrementally improving what we are doing. But my actual prediction would be less that less that than that we are we are going to move in this direction, and more that we will see more about very important subjects like dynamic capabilities, international entrepreneurship, and all of these things, which are very valuable. But if you purely look at it from a point of view of incremental value added, they are not as value adding incrementally, perhaps as they might have been if you actually also dealt with issues of sustainability, climate change, migration, distribution of income, all of these huge challenges we are facing, not to mention the, the big power of big tech companies today, and which of course they create immense value, but at the moment, at, at the same time, they are capturing a lot of value in various ways, which is not always obvious that they are adding to systemic value co-creation in a sustainable way without requisite regulation and, uh, and, 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 uh, and governments. Christos, uh, if you could rewrite uh, a dissertation or if you could uh, write another dissertation, what would you pick? What would you write on? Another research question. Dissertation. They, they gave another, you the... research. Hmm. another dissertation that has never crossed my mind because I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with my dissertation. What was it? What Actually, was I should have mentioned that the most proud, one of the things I'm proud was my dissertation because it was actually on uh, uh, how uh, the how the, on the, on what I call the socialization of capital uh, that is value uh, that is value capture from co-creating value and how it thinks like pension funds savings and uh, uh, corporate shares have uh, and and what later was in was uh, called financialization has led to a situation where everybody is basically embedded in uh, a process where value is being co-created but then it's being captured by uh, those who have developed particular skills and apparatuses in capturing value and this raises important issues about uh, public policy, antitrust policy, and uh, also it allows you to predict a number of things. For example, some of the issues we are facing today like financialization and like uh, big tech dominance, I would say, today, 
they are actually almost predicted in this thesis, as well as the financial cri the, 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 the crisis we faced, not for precisely the same reasons, but mostly because of the underlying trends. Uh, at the time, it was published as a monograph by Cambridge University Press, but so uh, it's a strange thing to say this, but if I was to write a dissertation again, I would probably write the same dissertation. Of course, and improved as much as I can and with the knowledge I have uh, accumulated since, but uh, I wouldn't like to change the topic. Interesting, socialization of capital. Interesting. Um, uh, from your window, uh, how did the culture of IB scholarship change over time? Uh, okay, that is another fascinating question because uh, what uh, uh, I, I will connect with this, uh, this question with how I ended IB. I ended IB 25 years ago because of John Dunning. John Dunning was one of the global academic advisory members of the Center for International Business and management that I was running at Cambridge. And I was often inviting him. He was coming to Cambridge. He was giving us talks. And I was working at the time on the nature of the multinational firm. And I, we had even published a book with Roger Sagden called The Nature of the Transnational Firm. But I had no idea about IB. And John said, had you ever realized that what you are doing is exactly what we are doing? I said, no. He said, why don't you come to one of our conferences? It happened that conference was in Monterrey, Mexico. That sounded like not a bad place at all to visit. So that's how I entered. And I went there. I felt a bit that I was out of place and that everybody was all over the place because in, in contrast to economic conferences, economics where everything was very well delineated, that appeared to be all over the place. Then again, gradually, that became one of the strengths exactly because of the need for of the multidisciplinarity and the eclecticism and also the, the overall openness that it had. Things have moved on since, which is hardly surprising because we have gradually become more delineated, more focused, more rigorous. But in the process of doing these good things, we have lost some of the old multidisciplinary, we have lost some of the emphasis on the uh, historical aspects, I would say, on political economic aspects. Um, so, and we lost some other things. I mean, we lost, for example, the interest in writing books, which I find very, very sad. And not just the interest, but also the skill, because writing books is a skill. As Edith Penrose was telling me, you need the ability to pursue a single argument for 250 pages. And this is a specific skill which you don't necessarily have when you are moving to journal articles. And when I, I try to recall where are all the big ideas in IB in the past, let's say uh, 30, 40 years, 50 years, most of them have to do with actually Heimer's book, uh, Buckley and Casson. Uh, they have to do with Williamson's for market and hierarchies, a, a number of other things. They are mostly books. And the fact that we have actually lost the ability, not necessarily the ability, at least the interest or the incentive to write books is, is a bit worrying. It's a bit worrying. Interesting. Single argument for 250 pages. 
That is exactly how Edith Penrose has actually uh, described their book, uh, the, the Theory of the Growth of the Firm, that this is a single argument. So starts with the first word and finishing with the last word, pursuing the same argument. So if you have a limit of, let's say, 12,000 words, it's not always as easy to, to achieve this. Sure. This was interesting. Um, well, Christos, uh, who had the most impact on you as a, as a PhD student uh, in your development, in your uh, mental uh, progress? Who, who had the biggest impact? Well, uh, my PhD supervisor was uh, Keith Cowling at the University of Warwick. Keith Cowling is probably considered to be widely as the father figure of uh, industrial economics and organization in the UK. He has produced and supervised the top uh, scholars, uh, some of the top scholars in the area. Over the process of working with him and uh, under his supervision, I was influenced primarily by the likes of uh, Stephen Heimer, and eventually, and uh, over time, and later by Edith Penrose. Both of them very significant contributions. The other people are very, uh, very fascinated with is Nelson and Winder's book, and uh, Sired and Marx. I think these are fundamental insights. I could mention Chandler, Buckley, and Casson, but uh, Heimer, Penrose, and uh, were basically the two major influences to start with. And for both of these people, I have written extensively, so much so that uh, there was a period until 15 years ago where if somebody uh, put in Google Scholar Pitelis, they would get a photograph of Penrose and, some, and, and not vice versa. At that time, I decided I better diversify a bit because I didn't want to look like uh, Edith because she looked much better than me. That would <laughs> appropriation, so to speak. <laughs> so, so uh, among the junior faculty, uh, looking at the junior faculty and the patient students, uh, what kind of uh, common mistakes do you see that these uh, young scholars uh, fall into, the traps that they fall into, things that they should avoid? Your advice to, to young scholars, young colleagues? Well, basically choosing subjects you don't feel passionate about just because they are being trendy. Uh, sometimes trying to spread uh, yourself too thin, failing to see the bigger picture, failing to balance the short with the longer term aspirations, trying to remember that life is more about uh, doing a job. But there are so many other things, for example, you can make huge mistakes in your life. Some of them look like serendipity. You get on the wrong side with a very powerful person at the wrong time, and that may cost you a lot or vice versa. So there are a number of very important things, but unless you do something you feel passionate about and with the humility, the perseverance, uh, the resilience and the respect, the respect for others, and being able to accept criticism, take good feedback, learn from it. It's, a, it's not a straightforward situation being an academic. Many things can go wrong and some things, uh, sometimes things can go right for no obvious reason, but this lack and serendipity is more the exception 
rather than the rule, I would say. Can you remember one thing? It, uh, now, looking back uh, into your past, you say, I wish I had known this before so that I would have saved a lot of, uh, it would have saved a lot of pain and agony. Um, I, it would uh, help me uh, start at a better point in life. Is there, is there one thing that you realize now that you wish you had realized by then? Well, I mean, the one thing that I keep thinking I should have realized beforehand you is not spread yourself too thin and not have the arrogance to believe that you can do everything and basically not realizing that the best, the, the most scarce resource is time and time is not coming back and opportunities will not keep knocking at your door. So you miss your one opportunity, it may be irreversible. When I was working for uh, in politics, I had as if they were a coincidence, so to speak, an extraordinary case one, when one of the leading journals in economics was asking me to submit an invited article because I had a huge, a very important database on a very important issue. And then one of the leading management journals also at the time was asking me consistently for a third revisory submit on a paper I had submitted and was about to be accepted. On both occasions, I did not pursue this thinking that, why do I need to do this? I am working on more important things now. And you find out that this, these things don't come, don't come back. Time flies and things change in a way that uh, some people believe in equifinality and there is a certain degree of truth about equifinality, especially if you are perseverant. But unless you have a life expectancy of around 200, equifinality <laughs> may, be, may be cut short well before you would be able to have achieved it. <laughs> uh, for the sake of time, I'm very sorry that you're out of time, but uh, what's the question that I should have asked you but haven't? Ah. The question which uh, is, uh, you might have asked me is what my major worry, and my major worry is the next generation of scholars in, uh, in general, and IB scholars in particular. It's a hugely important issue, uh, Ilgas, because uh, I don't think we are taking the right steps to train uh, in every type of way to mentor and to ensure that the field will continue thriving. Uh, I, keep, uh, I keep seeing a huge loss of institutional memory. There are young scholars who have no clue who is Stephen Heimer, despite everybody almost acknowledging that he was the father figure, let's say, of the field. Uh, big names like Dick Caves, Vernon, Vernon perhaps better known because of, other, of, the, of the product life cycle, uh, life, life cycle hypothesis. But there is a loss of institutional memory and also a focus on publishing also only in incremental pieces in A-rated journals, uh, which is and mostly empirical ones. But this actually kills the goose that lays the golden egg because the golden egg is the books and the big ideas that gave you the opportunity to work on these papers in an incremental and increasingly improved way. 
but unless the big ideas keep coming, we will be continuing to get incremental papers, mostly empirical, on issues that they simply add incremental value to an already well-examined issue, as opposed to opportunities for new scholars. In addition, of course, you know, there are issues with new scholars that relate to the fact that academia itself is being somehow devalued as an activity. Salaries are not always uh, as uh, even sufficient for them to have a decent living and focus on research. It's a huge challenge for the new generation. And I think we are, in one sense, committing collective euthanasia by not paying more attention to the next generation of scholars. There are other issues, of course, we could be discussing for hours, but this is my main concern. Some, sometimes I'm concerned about uh, institutional oligopoly, for example, and how sometimes uh, uh, there are issues, attitudes and approaches by, colleague, by some colleagues that basically uh, focus more on value capture rather than sustainable value co-creation, but these are uh, issues uh, more sort of related to the extant generation and my fear and, 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 and thinking is about the next generation. I mean, one of the things I wanted, uh, I, 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 I wanted to be remembered for when I was very young is basically to have to write a book that it will be read uh, 50 years after death. And I'm afraid that without a new generation of scholars, there won't be anybody to read this even if I was able to produce it. So partly it's self-interest, but partly it's also because I have two kids in academia and I see that they don't have the opportunities we used to have. Thank you so much for this interview. I enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you, Chris. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm privileged and I'm grateful. Thank you.